Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We have begun a process of commemorating events leading to the founding of the state. And while it's generated some discussion over how best to tell our history, the question hasn't really been asked. Is the state a good idea in the first place? Jared Casey of the UCD School of Philosophy says we've been hoodwinked into believing the state is both necessary and desirable, when in fact states are criminal organisations, he says, responsible for atrocities far beyond those achievable by individuals or voluntary associations. I started by asking him to explain this charge of criminality. Uh, I mean it actually literally. Um, look, if, um, if you're walking down the street, somebody comes up to you, holds a knife to your throat and says, give me your money and you hand it over, uh, albeit in, you know, non-voluntarily, that's a criminal action. Now, the state actually takes money from everybody in the country, and it does it, does it by the threat of force. In other words, by and large, most people don't get their legs broken or don't get put in jail, but you try not paying your taxes, and you'll discover very quickly that force will be used if you'd like to punish you if you don't. Um, now, if it was voluntary, of course, if people were making these contributions voluntarily, it wouldn't be a problem. Uh, Nobody, when I go to buy my groceries uh, in SuperValue or wherever, uh, uh, they provide me with the food. I hand over the money. It's a, it's a voluntary interchange of services and, and uh, money. No problem. They don't have to threaten me. I don't have to threaten them, right? But they don't extract it from me by force. Nobody arrives in my door with a basket of groceries and says, here, you're going to have these groceries. And I go, well, who are you? And he goes, well, I'm going to be your grocer. And I've put all the other grocers in the place out of business. And you must have these groceries and only these groceries. And I'm going to tell you how much you're going to pay for them. Right? Now, think how bizarre that would be. But that's exactly the way the state functions. Is it not legitimate, though, to trade off a bit of the human freedom for the benefits that come with the state, the services, the hospitals, the education systems, the free third-level education, for instance, or whatever else needs to be provided for that, that um, curtailment of one's freedom? Uh, the short answer is no, it's not. Um, the, the idea, see, this is all, the, your question, if you pardon me, is based on the presupposition that somehow if the state weren't providing these services, these services wouldn't be provided. And that's a classic argument in favour of the state, but of course it's nonsense. Uh, historically, in fact, all of these services began to be provided before ever the state became interested in them. And if the state were no longer interested or no longer able, as they may well may well be the case, actually, if things go as they're going, then it will be back to the situation where we're going to be providing these things for ourselves. Look, should the state provide car insurance for everybody? And the answer is no. Why should it do that? I mean, I take out insurance because... The, the cost of a catastrophic accident to me or to anybody I injure is such that I couldn't do it myself. So, Or we have organizations called insurance companies that arise so that you can lay off the risk for a modest premium every year. So you do the same thing for your health insurance. You would pay for your education. You would pay for your water. You would pay for your electricity in exactly the same way. Uh, if something is needed in a human community, I guarantee you someone will provide it. You'll either provide it yourself or somebody will get together with other people and provide it for you uh, in return for money. 
problem. You make the point in your book that societies existed prior to the state and, and people got on reasonably well. Although that is debatable. I mean, the examples you kind of cite from maybe early Irish society to a lot of people, isn't a particularly attractive um, lifestyle, isn't a particularly attractive society maybe to go back to. It's fairly brutal, fairly life was fairly short. It wasn't a nice place, and, and particularly in terms of one's personal protection, people needed the support of a chieftain or a, a statelet within the community, if not, you know, a, a, a national state. Yeah, I don't want to be misunderstood. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not making the case for a return to the, you know, the 10th century or so on. Uh, I'm simply pointing out that there are aspects of that society which we could actually modernize and update. Uh, but I was making the point, Just I was, the only reason I was making the point was that there are societies that have functioned, if you like, with, without the kind of central control that we now have. If they're not to be provided by the state, then order and uh, justice, security, have to be provided in some other way. So, so let me give you an example of how, in a modern society, would be, we would be able to do things uh, in, in a way that was done in medieval times without the disadvantages. Medieval society, of course, was status-based, and we would not, status, not status-based. Uh, Men and women were discriminated against. You had rich and poor, free and unfree, and I'm not recommending any of that. But in, say, medieval Ireland, uh, if you went to law, you, your family, your kinship group, had to lodge, if you like, a, a surety, uh, so that if you lost, then the, the winning party would actually get what had been deposited. Uh, there's no reason to think that we have either have the families now that would do that or that they should be obliged to do it. There's no reason why your family should be obliged to pay for you. But once again, uh, what you do is you would take out insurance. Now, there's no real problem with this. If you think about the way businesses operate, if two businesses are involved in a, in a complicated and expensive uh, arrangement, uh, which has the possibility of going wrong, right? One of the things that, that one of the companies can seek, if they really think there's a possibility of things going belly up, is they can seek, they, they can require the other company to take out a bond, right? And you see, so what they do is, and, and so uh, that company goes to another company, right, and pays a premium. They, that other company, if you like, undertake, undertakes then to indemnify the original company if anything goes wrong. There's no reason why all of this can't be done. It's not problematic. I mean, all it requires is a little bit of imagination. But our imaginations are enthralled to the present. That's one of the things I tried to make clear in the book. We are dominated by the conception that the way things are now is the only possible way that they can be. History shows, in fact, that that is not the case. And if we know anything from history, we know that the future is a different country. You might just explain, I mean, the, the philosophy behind this libertarian anarchy, anarchy is, is the title of your, yes. well, your, your recent book. Uh, and you kind of describe the libertarian, maybe the statist versus the libertarian dichotomy as the real possibly dichotomy, more, more so than the liberal conservative, which is the one that we often talk about. Yeah, the liberal conservative thing is simply a one-dimensional way, often characterized as left and right, and that's really not a particularly uh, astute uh, tool of analysis. The, the heart and soul of libertarianism is very simple. It says human beings are free, and their freedom should not be constrained unless they're using it to aggress against other human beings. That's it. That's it. There is really no, nothing more to it than that. If you encompass that as the core of your political system, then everything else, is, if you like, is up for grabs. So um, a libertarian society could be, sort of, could be a neo-beatnik society. Right? They could be into free love and all sorts of other things. Okay? You could have an extraordinarily socially conservative group which encompassed this principle. They, could all, they would live separately and they would do their own things, but they would both encompass this principle. So there's no reason to think that, that, that the libertari libertarianism is, as it were, to use that one-dimensional tool of analysis, either left or right. In fact, 
uh, if you were to sort of draw a, left, a line and put L and R at one extremity and R at the other, uh, libertarianism cuts across it. One sort of historical argument for the state that's often made is that it's it's necessary to prevent wars and to prevent, uh, which I know you won't agree with, but for instance, and to protect, prevent great atrocities. Like a, a conventional account of the start of the Second World War is that Nazi Germany emerged from a weak state, a weak German state in the in the aftermath of World War One. What's your response to that? I have to use a, a Georgism here. You have to back up the truck. Okay, <laughs> look, remember that um, if you and I have a, have a disagreement, a violent disagreement, you know, I might punch you in the face or I'm, I'm, and so on. I'm, I might even, if I was very vindictive, try to set fire to your house or something. The amount of damage I can actually do is extremely limited. If I can get a gang of people together to do it, I have a greater chance of doing it. But I have to pay the costs of this. Violence costs money. This happens in, in The Godfather where the Michael and I can't remember who his name are having a discussion. And, and he says, you know, blood, I don't, I don't like blood. Blood costs money. So even, even the gangsters realize that blood costs money. Now, when you talk about this is, uh, states protecting us against this, states are the agents of violence. Uh, in fact, uh, the almost 200 million deaths that took place in the 20th century were, were produced by states or by, by people who wanted to be states. Ordinary violence produces something considerably less. If you didn't have states, you wouldn't have violence of this kind. The kind of organization it takes to uh, conduct a war and the amount of money which is extracted, if you like, by tax from the unwilling taxpayer and then the future taxpayers by loans and forced loans and all of the rest is extraordinary. And we were still paying for World War One. We're still paying for World War Two. These are extraordinary things. In other words, if, if, if Hitler, if there had been no state, if there had been no Germany, by the way, which only came into existence about 100 years before Hitler, remember, there was no Germany. There was just a tiny little state. That's, everybody thinks that's an improvement. I don't. But if there had been no Germany, then Hitler couldn't have become chancellor of Germany. Hitler wouldn't have been able to take control of all of the resources of the German people okay, and to wage those wars. No state, no crazy leaders. Of course, in this world, you will still have violence. You will still have murders and rapes and assaults. This is not an idyllic world, and that has to be dealt with. But you wouldn't have war in the way which we now, which we have seen it in the past. And indeed, that situation is changing already. The, the era of the big state war is probably on the way. Your solution, if it calls a solution for dealing with conflict, um, is the non-aggression principle. Uh, or you, you suggest that this is something that can be applied as a way of, of handling conflict, if I'm right. You might explain that just briefly. Um, and how, can one enforce the non-aggression principle is the, is the question that follows. Yeah, the non-aggression principle, which to state it very briefly, is the idea that no one has a right to inflict physical violence, to initiate or threaten to initiate physical violence on another. That's not a solution to the problem of violence. That's just a statement of what one may and may not do. I can disapprove of you and I can make rude remarks about you and so on. But what I can't do is I can't just go over and punch you in the face, okay? Nor can I put my hand in your pocket and take your wallet out and, and distribute the goods to somebody else. Those would, be all, those would all be violations of the non-aggression principle. So the non-aggression principle is the constitutive principle underlying the basic laws which govern human interaction. In a libertarian society, apart from explicit agreements above and beyond that, Libertarian, uh, the non-aggression principle would be the only thing that would actually be enforced by individuals themselves or by groups to which they lay off their responsibility for defending themselves. So in other words, if you're, you're going about your business and let's say I disapprove of your lifestyle, 
I can't get together with a bunch of my neighbors and pass a law saying you may not do what you're doing. Okay? If your lifestyle actually doesn't involve aggressing against another person. I think that's a great improvement, don't you? One of the, the, the result of all that, by the way, is that the guys in Leinster House would go out of business. Instead of busily passing laws all the time, by the way, which is a very new idea. The idea of actually making laws a revolutionary idea, it's a new idea. And I have to tell you, it's a really bad idea. Okay? Uh, the, the, the common law, if you like, emerged on the basis of the non-aggression principle. Oh, obviously, it wasn't perfect, but the idea was that what, what judges were giving effect to was the idea that you really weren't allowed to aggress against another person's person or property. And that's how law develops, and that's what law should be concerned with. Other than that, things are handled, handled by good manners and by people's behaving and living together and choosing to go where they go and who they associate with. Not a problem. Are there problems that are so big that you need states um, to deal with them, like climate change, for instance? I was on radio a couple of years ago, and uh, I, I was talking about this, and I said things that were uh, politically incorrect, and it was the most abuse I've ever got in my life. I could have gone on and accused people of misbehaving and with their mothers and so on. I wouldn't have got that kind of abuse. So let me just make these few points here. I really don't want to start a fight on this one. <clears throat> Whether and to what extent we have climate change is a moot point. We probably do. Climates change all the time. Uh, whether and to what extent human beings are contributing is an interesting point. We have very rough ways of trying to figure this out. The question of whether even if we are contributing to climate change uh, and how much is a question for discussion uh, and what effect it will have, again, is a, is a disputed question. And whether the effects, by the way, will be bad or good is a question which is not often discussed. We assume it's going to be catastrophic. Well, you're going to lose some South Pacific islands, but frankly, who cares? I don't care. And we're now living in a period of climate change. I don't know if you know that, but, but, but 10,000 years ago, the ice came down to Athlone. We were living in an ice age. Do you want to go back to that? Okay, we're now living in a warm interglacial period. Okay, so the real question here is, as as some thinkers have said, is look, uh, we even if parts of climate change are being in, induced by man-made behavior, and and we knew what that was. The question is, a, what can we do about it, or more importantly, should we do anything about it? And so, if a few people are going to lose their 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 lifestyle or their little islands, then we 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 devote some of the ridiculous amounts of money we're devoting to carbon emissions and all of the rest to trying to figure out what we're going to do. Now, we build dikes and we build dams or we build walls if the sea level is going to rise. We do things. So we don't need governments for this because, frankly speaking, there's almost nothing they can do anyway, I suspect. Uh, certainly not in the short run. And even if there was, the question is, should we do it or should we devote our resources to something else is an open question. Finally, can I ask you about well, one thing you say in, in uh, your book, Libertarian Anarchy, about the role of the education system, breeding apologists for the state. Uh, you might explain that. Uh, there's a lot of graduates possibly go on and work in the state. Maybe you have some of these in mind. Or, or is it, is it uh, deeper than that? It, it is deeper than that. I, I mean, what it comes down to is this. If, if you can construct a social system in which certain questions become unaskable or the answers any answer other than the obvious one becomes inconceivable, then you've done a brilliant job. This is a bit like in 1984. Okay? You frame the language in such a way that it's not, simply, it's not possible to ask the question. So, for example, we have civics in secondary school, and all sorts of interesting things happen in civics in secondary school, you know, how the government are organized and, and how TDs are elected and how many they are. To, and, but the basic question is, why do we have any of this? Where is that asked and answered? Okay, where's that question? <laughs> how do we get how, how do we get this again? How is it that a group of people, most of whom I don't know, and without any uh, manifest disrespect, are not, if you like, the most intellectually gifted people in the world, 
Okay, why are they all sitting around in Mester House when they should be gainfully employed? Okay, making rules that tell me and you what we can and can't do. How did that happen? I don't understand that. You go, well, you say we have a constitution. I go, well, yeah, but I didn't vote for it. I wasn't around in 1937. In fact, none of the people who voted for it, by the way, which were only about 60% of the population who were eligible to vote, uh, are alive. Why are we stuck with that? I don't understand that. Where, where does it say, where did like, where does some kind of political Moses come down from heaven with tablets of stone saying, this is how it shall be. You shall obey your masters. You might say, well, you know, you're always free. I, will, I love this one. I always get this one. Of course, you're free to vote for somebody else. And I go, well, the only answer to that is the Lysander Spooner one, which says, a slave is no less free if he gets to change his slave master every five years. The question is not which set of slave masters you have. It's a question of having slave masters in the first place. Right? That's the problem. So our educational system, by the way, in which I'm centrally involved and doing my best to subvert by raising these questions for my students so they will really ask these basic questions. I think that's the role of an educational system, by the way. And I would like to see a separation of state and education, just as I would think we should have a separation of state and church. In fact, I would like to get the state away from education as much as possible so that education could be a truly liberating experience for all students. Jared Casey, thank you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.